Welcome back, listeners, to a new episode of The New Standard. And as always, I have my partner in crime, Neil Kulong, to my left. What's up, Neil? Nothing but happiness to your left today, Lance. It's a gorgeous day. We are excited to talk some Steelers Week 7. What do you think? I am with you. I don't know if my day is as beautiful. It's not about uh, 7 degrees in Minnesota yet. It's 28, 27, excuse me. 20 went down. That's the fun thing with Minnesota. The temperature goes down throughout the day sometimes. That doesn't happen in most places. (laughs) I think if it were 27 degrees where I am, um, it would be a national emergency. Uh, It's funny that you say 27 degrees is nice and crisp, but that's enough of me playing Al Roker on the show. Uh, So I'm going to shift to football and say, if you want to join the experience, make sure you go to YouTube and do a search for the new standard. Also, you can go to your podcast feeder and do a search in Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, any popular podcast feeder. And you can find a show, do a search for the new standard Steelers, Lance Williams and Neil Kulong. Also want to give a big shout out to show sponsors, Plant Based Partners. What's up? You can find Plant Based Partners on YouTube. Also, Great Dads versus Everybody and Peer Health. Thank you for being sponsors of the show. And thank all of you, especially you, Big Melvin. Melvin's excited. He's still uh, basking in the glow of Tennessee's victory over Alabama. If Still Al- talking if, about that. Still talking about that. You know, if my team. I win championships. You don't do it in October. That is true, but you started in October. But with that, you know, we're going to hop into the program. And the title of this program is, Do the Steelers Have a Starting QB Controversy? But before we jump into that, I wanted to jump into some of the player grades uh, for the last game that the Steelers had. And I wanted you to speak to those uh, uh, very briefly, Neil. Um, because I think, and I want to ask you a couple of questions around a particular grade in that game. And and the game in question is, and the, and the player in question, uh, more so is Chase Claypool in the game, Chase Claypool graded out very high, um, in the game as I'm, I'm, as I'm looking at at it or looking for it right now, I think his grade was in the eighties. Do you think? That was a one-off for Chase Claypool in this game. I think he was the highest-graded player for the Steelers in that great in that game, according to PFF. Uh, do you think that was a one-off, or do you think this is something that we could see uh, Chase Claypool building on? Can it be both? To this point, what we've seen of Chase Claypool is that yeah, it is it is a one-off. Um, this is by far his best game this season. Um, I feel that he was graded fairly. Uh, by the the folks over at PFF. I I think um, anytime you're grabbing seven passes for 96 yards and a touchdown with two of those being clutch third down receptions in the fourth quarter of a one score game, uh, you you probably should have a fairly high mark, but as it is, um, it's, that's a very, very solid chunk of his six games to this point. I mean, we're talking, uh, you look back at, at what he's had the last, uh, five games with the team. He had four catches, 26 yards against New England, three for 35 against Cleveland. He didn't have a catch against the Jets on two targets, 
five catches, 50 yards against Buffalo in the blowout. And again, by far his best game so far this season. Is he capable of that? We've, we've seen it. Yeah. Um, it, my criticism of, Chape, of, of Claypool to this point has been he's largely an HWS guy, height, weight, speed guy, somebody that has all of the, the physical attributes, but doesn't play it on the field. He's not nearly as uh, productive as you think that he would be. <clears throat> but I'll make the argument that, you know, between two quarterbacks on Sunday, uh, he caught seven balls and seven targets, six of them for first downs. He got a 26 yard pass that was on a third down. Uh, 13.7 per catch. That's a man game. You know, he came to play. Now, is the the criticism uh, a factor in that? Is it something that he's taken upon himself to correct? Uh, I hope so. For his sake, I, I hope so. Because frankly, not that wasn't just the best game of his season. That was the best game of his last 30 games. I mean, it, he's he's been largely a non-factor for the better part of uh, the last season and a half for the Steelers. So, um, if, if he's putting that together, that's great. Um, I, I think he is capable of doing it. He's got technical issues, in my opinion, as a receiver, things that he needs to get better at. But at the end of the day, it's about getting down the field and catching the ball. And he did that Sunday. And his grade for the game, excuse me, listeners, was 86.7, his overall offensive grade. Great. His pass catching grade was 89. I suspect that grade of 86.7 was probably – top five and wide receivers across the league uh, for week six. Another grade that hopped out to me is Mitch Trubisky in the grain graded out at 78.8, which I thought was a solid grade. Uh, James Daniels graded out at 71.0. Mason Cole graded out at 68.8. All of those were in the green range, according to PFF. Uh, in terms of Chase Claypool, do you think, his lack of production or inconsistent play, what do you think is the biggest factor contributing to the hip, to that? Is it him? Is it the offense? Is it the quarterbacks that he's playing with? Uh, what do you think is, is the biggest contributor to his inconsistent play? Um, biggest, I think, is going to be kind of tough uh, to, to pin down, especially right now. We're six games into the season. I think everything you mentioned is definitely a factor. Um different quarterbacks within an offense that hasn't clicked, that hasn't really gelled. Um, it, it's, it's dragging everybody down. There are a lot of bad actors within that group that are not uh, helping uh, to, to, to foster a, a, a real um, highly productive end product when it comes to what the Steelers are doing offensively. I, I think Chase has left opportunities on the field. I think he's dropped passes or at the very least failed to make uh, the play that you'd hope that a receiver like him would make. Um, it, it, it came together well, especially with Trubisky under center uh, for most of the second half on Sunday. What's holding him back, in my opinion, I think is just a, an offense that is not good enough to consistently um, move the chains and add more plays to their total. And with that, Claypool is not uh, healthily producing those plays in order to, to, you know, move the chains and keep things going. So it, it's really kind of a chicken versus the egg thing overall, though, I think he just needs to be consistent. And I think the offense needs to produce in a more um, productive fashion, the way that they did in, in the second half of this game and the beginning of, of the first half as well. I thought Pickett led a great drive uh, to start the, the game off Claypool, I think had a catch in that um, somebody correct me if I'm wrong, but Overall, I, I think he has the ability to improve and to make 
uh, himself into a better player. We have not seen that game to game the way that we would like. But if this is a step in the right direction, um, I, I definitely think it'll be obvious for us to go back and say, you know what, what did it for Claypool was that that uh, that week six game, that week, uh, the big upset against Tampa Bay back in week six. We'll see if that comes to bear. But there, there are a lot of different factors that are going to come into it. I think that's fair. Another number I want to point out before we jump to the defensive side of football and before we jump into our special guest to help us break down the Dolphins game, Najee Harris, 59.5. It's becoming to the point where Najee Harris is slowly before our eyes becoming Najee Snell. They're becoming essentially the same player and that there's no real discernible difference between um, Najee Harris in any other running back uh, in the National Football League. In terms of the defensive side of the ball, the grades that stood out, Cam Hayward had a grade of 88.5. Alex Highsmith had a grade of 84.4. Terrell Edmonds had a grade of 82.9. Larry Okunjobi, I was surprised at this number, had a grade of 70.6. I thought it would be a little bit higher. Even Devin Bush had a green graded grade of 69.4 and I think when you see all these players Malik Reed had a green graded grade of 73.8 Miles Jack 76.7 and I think it just speaks to how well the defense played in this game when you have seven players who played significant snaps in the game get green graded games are you surprised that uh Ogunjobi's grade was a little bit lower and uh that Cam's grade was as high as 88.5 um, the way that I look at PFF, I, I think that it is a necessary component um, of your own evaluation of a game. I'm not, I'm not going to preach it as gospel, but I am going to say that it's a good reference point, and it oftentimes yeah. is within a, a reasonable uh, range of what you, if you're watching it uh, closely, probably figured. So to me, whether Ogunjobi got 80 versus 85 i i don't know i mean when you when you get down to the nitty-gritty details i trust that they're probably right because i'm not surprised he is in that range i felt he earned that that's what i get from my evaluation um what they produce tends to back that up more often than not so i I feel like it's probably correct if there is such a thing and i I think we get stuck in the trap of trying to uh, create something incontrovertible that just simply doesn't exist uh, evaluation in football i don't care who you are or who you talk to or what you think that you know it is ultimately a subjective process uh what is subjective versus objective um, it, it is a matter of debate but if you know what you're looking at you could have seen larry Ogunjobi in that game uh playing well playing above uh what we have seen from him and above uh his opponent i thought he did a great job um, overall, I, I, to be honest, though, the one who stood out to me was Hayward. It, upon second review, Hayward had a really good game. Uh, I'm not surprised by the fact that they were, am I right on that? They were the two highest graded uh, defensive linemen. Um, uh, Hayward was, for sure. Yeah, Hayward and Ogunjobi were, were one and yes, two for the Steelers. I, I'm not surprised by that. Um, I, I thought, uh, it, to, in, and to, to put the counter side to this on it, because I know there are a lot of people that, that hate PFF and, and won't acknowledge anything that they do um i would have thought alex highsmith would have graded out a little bit lower um he made a big play and sometimes that's all it takes um in in a way it, he, as a defensive player 
you make one big play a game, you're in a Pro Bowl, regardless of what you do for most of the rest of it. Uh, he made a big play, and uh, maybe that propelled him to that. I thought he got eaten up quite a bit um, against, you know, maybe the best left tackle in, in football, Tristan Wirfs. So uh, overall, I, I felt uh, Highsmith probably would have been the one I would have guessed would have scored a little bit lower. Um, Terrell Edmonds, I thought, was about right on. Uh, good game, good solid game from him, his best game this season, and absolutely out of time the team needed him. <clears throat> it's going to be interesting what they do with Terrell Edmonds. He's played very good football this year. And we see the impact of uh, the impact it has on their defense when he does not play. But I want to switch reels real quick and bring in our special guest of Dolphins Wire. Welcome to the show. And correct me if I'm wrong, Mike Masala. Am I pronouncing your last name correctly? That's perfect. I I appreciate the uh, the extra work that you put in for that. Neil, do the honors, please. I will. This is Mike Masala, as I was going to say. I know that uh, that is the correct way you pronounce his name. And as somebody that usually has his name mispronounced, I always make the point to uh, to make sure all of our names are pronounced correctly. It's not Lance Williams as much as we want to call him that. But uh, it, Mike, Mike is our Dolphins Wire editor. He's done a fantastic job for us since last season covering uh, one of the rising teams in the NFL. There's been a bunch of news um, in, in any variety with the Dolphins. They've been one of the most active transactional teams. Um, they've got plenty of controversy, as we know, spilling over as, as recently as last week, uh, certainly in the offseason. Um, we're going to get into the coaching <laughs> coaching stuff that happened this offseason here in a little bit. Uh, but a, a great team to cover, and we're, we're super excited to have uh, brought Mike into that role. He's done a great job. Thanks for joining us, Mike. Yeah, no problem. I really appreciate you guys having me. Uh, it's gonna be a fun week this week. A lot to talk, to, lot to talk about. Definitely. Let's. Uh, do you want me to dive in, Lance? Yeah, go ahead and dive into it, Neil. Let's do that. There, there are, um, as you just alluded to, Mike. There are a lot of storylines in this game. Um, let Let's just get the broadest one out of the way here first, just because I, I think this is sort of the, the combination of the most familiar and the hottest, um, kind of off the field topic. But uh, Brian Flores. What uh, what was the feeling from Dolphins fans when he was fired? And do you get any sense that his position with the Steelers now gives him any kind of tactical advantage in terms of internal insight on the Dolphins? Yeah, the whole Brian Flores situation was one of the most polarizing events that we saw happen in recent memory. And you had half the fan base who was really shocked and really confused as to why Brian Flores was initially let go. And then you had the other half who was just ready to move on, wanted to see some uh, some playoff wins and wanted more success than he was already getting despite having two winning seasons. Um, the How it's played out, has been a little bit different. We've had uh, a lot of the narrative come from the ownership level and the team level of um, a lot of negative things said about Brian Flores. And obviously they've gone back and forth with their, with their lawsuit and uh, the claims that Brian Flores has made about what was asked of him during his first season in Miami and then throughout his tenure there and the, uh, the dealings with Tom Brady, everything that came down from that. I think fans for the most part, um, sided with the team you did have a few people who saw this guy who was an up-and-coming coach and seemed to get the most out of his players whether the players really liked it or not it, from the inside perspective it doesn't seem like a everybody loved him having him there and he's a hard coach to to play for it's he came from that Belichick tree that tough love uh that 
yelling and doing whatever you can to get the most out of your guys, that's that's the tree he came from, and that's what he used in Miami. So I think it, it was a big loss, and having him in Pittsburgh does give uh, the Steelers a bit of an advantage this week. Obviously, uh, despite the coaching change, Miami decided to keep Josh Boyer, the defensive coordinator, in Miami. He's using that same scheme that he was using last year. Um, it hasn't been nearly as effective. Part of that is because of injuries. They haven't been haven't had Byron Jones. They've had a couple other players go down. And part of that is because you lose familiarity with a guy like Brian Flores, who's a, a well-respected defensive mind. You lose Gerald Alexander, who's also been doing some consulting. Um, you you lose these guys, and, and you're just not able to play at the same level. But the base parts of this defense is the same, and Brian Flores knows that, and he's bringing that to Pittsburgh for this matchup. I wanted to jump into another question, a controversial topic that has hit the Miami Dolphins this year was the handling of Tua's injury. Because it seems like to me in this game, one of your basic narratives or strategies on the defensive side of football is just simply put hits on Tua. I mean, you have a you have a player who's dealt with concussions over the last few weeks. What was the fan base's opinion in terms of how the Dolphins managed that situation? Do they think they got it right? And how comfortable does the fan base feel about Tua moving forward and playing, um, knowing that another concussion could possibly, you know, possibly derail the entire season? The fan base, I think, in, in their own right, was was okay with the way the Dolphins handled it. I think the national media and and those specifically with the injury background or the medical background, they were more concerned than the fan base was. Obviously, anytime you see an injury like that, it is terrifying. It I found it hard to go back and actually watch the game with an analytical perspective, seeing that that hit on that field, that fencing reaction, it, it was tough to watch. But I think from what fans are saying is they think that they followed the letter of the lock, and that's what the team is saying. They, they followed the steps. The league has said, yeah, they followed the steps, but the steps weren't necessarily the right steps. And I think that's stems from the league's problem, and they've obviously fixed that. We've seen an overcorrection in the last few weeks. Um, I know you guys have had Kenny Pickett go out last week with a uh, concussion protocol of his own. Uh, Teddy Bridgewater was taken out without a concussion but was in the protocol uh, and didn't wasn't able to practice all last week. So I think the fans aren't necessarily upset with the team, but they are worried about Tua. I mean, you've seen four weeks now where there's been an injury to the quarterback position. Tua came back in the first week against Buffalo. And then every other week you finish the game with a different quarterback than you started with. So they know how important Tua is. And that's a big change from what we saw last season where half the fan base was really trying to get rid of him already. And uh, that's a a decision that will have to be made at the end of this season or, or coming into the following, but they're obviously you're concerned for the human element, uh, that is a very scary injury, and for those two plays to happen two weeks apart, five days really, playing on Thursday night, it's it's tough to really see what uh, like the drive to play, and it, it's tough to watch at that perspective. Yeah, five five days in between, but it was also like twenty snaps, wasn't it? I mean, yeah. it, it's not as if it, it's. This is why you don't script questions because you just answered everything I was about to ask. It's very, uh, very insightful. But what I had was the Dolphins lost three in a row and all three of those games in the losing streak. I didn't I didn't Mm -hmm. look back to the fourth game like I should have in the losing streak. They have had at least two quarterbacks playing in that game. The Steelers are familiar with that now that they've had what two of three, uh, two of four 
with two quarterbacks in there. Um, by all accounts, and this is according to Mike Tomlin in his press conference yesterday, Kenny Pickett is out of concussion protocol. While they're going to continue to evaluate him, uh, it is expected that he's going to start. This is kind of an odd quarterback matchup just because of that. And, and for the fact that this game is in prime time, I, I feel like for a league that is constantly, almost by mandate, planning to shut the doors after the cows have escaped. Mm-hmm. It just, it, it feels like something's going to happen here to one of the quarterbacks. It could be any combination of them by the end of it. And it, it really underscores the idea here that, um, and to be fair, I, I apologize. I'm going to get on my soapbox here for a second. The union wanted to position itself immediately after the Tua situation as if they had no hand in any of this, which is completely false. They signed off on all of this up mm-hmm. to and including the fact that they basically spin all of this in a way that fans uh, knowingly act as if the concussion protocol means he has a concussion. It's not what it means at all. You can't diagnose a concussion on the field immediately after a hit. They are looking for symptoms and signs, which does not mean he has or does not have. It just means it's likely or it's unlikely. When the player is cleared, it's because they pass a, a barrage of tests. They're not showing physical ailments. But those ailments can show up a week or two later. So in, in Tua's case, he had some time off. He's absolutely not safe in any way. It, it, it's not a safe game. He's not going to be. But it, at the same time, Pickett isn't either. You might recall, Mike, and Lance, you as well. Both of them, uh, the, the, the latest injury that they had was when they were pushed to the ground, their head snapped back and hit the ground. It wasn't on a helmet-to-helmet shot because no one was flagged for any of the three hits here that were in question. Um, Getting back to the point, though, do you feel Tua's return has to mean something to a team that's lost three games in a row? They're playing at home in prime time. Let's just hope and, and, you know, suggest here that he remains healthy throughout the entire game. How big of an upgrade is that for the Dolphins from what we've seen of, of two other quarterbacks in Miami right now? Yeah, I mean, it feels like the biggest upgrade they could get right now because Tua, through those first three and a half weeks, uh, looked really solid. Um, he he looked like a, a quarterback who uh, was ascending. He, he fit the system, and this is what exactly what Mike McDaniel was brought here to do. Uh, they put weapons around him. They brought in an offensive line that was improved. Everything was kind of clicking at the right time, and to then lose him and then to go to Teddy Bridgewater and then pretty much immediately to Skylar Thompson and then to lose Skylar Thompson again back to Teddy Bridgewater. It's been a bit of a roller coaster. So to have a stable presence in there, like to a a guy who's able to get the ball into some tighter windows, get the ball accurately to his, to his receivers in space, let them make the plays, let them be the playmakers that they are because Let's face it, you have Tyreek Hill, you have Jalen Waddle, you get the ball in their hands within four or five yards of the line of scrimmage, they can do anything that they want with that ball. They can they can bring it 75 yards. We, we've already seen that this year. You can get guys in space, Chase Edmonds, Raheem Mostert. You can do a lot more than you can with Teddy Bridgewater, who this past week played without basically without practicing with his team for the whole week. Or or Skylar Thompson, a, a seventh-round rookie out of Kansas State. Like You can get more more from them. And Tua, on, on top of that, He's, this is his first year as a captain, and he's really made it known. And and the players and and the coaches have told everybody how much they he, that his presence means to this team. And and if they're going to make it as far as they want to make it, Tua has to be there. And I think this is a 
if if he can stay healthy, like we talked about, this is a great step for them and uh, getting back and riding that ship because this doesn't feel like a three and three team, uh, especially after the way that they started the season. I think they've just had a, a string of bad luck, but that's that's not the only part of it. It's getting getting to a back will definitely help a lot of a lot of the procedures. This game is very interesting because I, I try to look at things from a narrative perspective. I think one of the things from the Steelers standpoint defensively, you want to hit two, and obviously you need to keep Waddle and uh, Tariq Hill in front of you, and you need to tackle well. How do you think this is going to look from the perspective of the Steelers, how they'll approach it defensively from a coverage perspective? And we've been talking a lot about two. How much rust do you think will be around or on to his game coming back after being off for about a few weeks. Yeah, it makes sense to expect some rust, especially um, with him being pretty much limited to to nothing. It's a, it's a very light football activity um, or, or um, light aerobic exercise for the last two or so weeks. And and now getting him back in the game, yeah, he, he could get back to the level that he was playing at, but it is probably going to take some time. He's not gonna he's not gonna step on the field and probably look like the, the quarterback we saw against the, in the second half comeback against the Ravens or the solid play that he had down the stretch against the Bills. It's it's going to be tough to expect that right away. Um, as far as how the Steelers are going to defend them, I think you really need to get after uh, Tua. At, at this point right now, um, The both tackles are questionable. Uh, Austin Jackson, who's been playing the right side this year, is in his 21-day window to come back from injured reserve from an ankle injury. Teron Armstead has been dealing with a toe that kept him out last week and most of the game the week prior. So you're not really sure if you're going to get those guys. And Greg Little, I know we, I heard you guys talking about PFF grades before. Um, Greg Little had a 1.5 pass protection grade last week, which is uh, <laughs> I don't I don't I didn't That's know they more like <laughs> I did not know that they went that low. I didn't um, either. <laughs> so so if you can get pressure on him, I know you guys don't have TJ to to go uh, to go in this game, but if you can get pressure on Tua, you can force. Uh, some some mistakes that's definitely something that's part of his game and he's going to have to continue to limit um but you're right keeping keeping Tariq Hill keeping Jalen Waddle in front of you playing maybe some deep safeties having Minka be a little bit of a spy there doing doing a, a few different things to keep those guys from making the big plays tackling needs to be of the utmost importance for the Steelers this game because you can't let a guy like Hill or Waddle or Gasecki or Edmonds make moves in space because it's not going to go well. Um, you're going to let this offense put up a, a lot of points, a lot of yards, if, if that's the case. So um, the Steelers have have some of the guys to do it. Um, I don't necessarily love <laughs> Pittsburgh's secondary, um, but I think they have the the chance to scheme things up well, and, and obviously Brian Flores helps there. We don't even know who the secondary is going to be. <laughs> like five new guys last week. There were dudes running around mm-hmm. we never heard of before. Wouldn't right. uh, injury report will come out this afternoon. We're recording this on a Wednesday, so uh, practice report will come out. We'll get a better idea of what Pittsburgh will have uh, to deal with in their secondary. And of course, you you brought up Minka Fitzpatrick, um, the only recipient for the Steelers of a trade for a first round draft pick in uh, at least 22 years. I forget how far back that goes. Now the only first round draft pick that, that uh, former general manager, Kevin Colbert ever traded for, he didn't even crack my list of the five top storylines of this game. That to me, this is like a blogger's dream. There's so Mm -hmm. much uh, between these teams 
um, it, it, not in, in a, a, a hateful way or anything. It's just there's so much in this game. This is really interesting to me. Um, the biggest thing, though, watching Miami, um, I'll, I'll say this. Steelers fans, when they think of a wide receiver from Pittsburgh signing with Miami, first name they're thinking of is Mike Wallace. Obviously, any receiver signing with the Dolphins is going to be compared to the disaster that was Mike Wallace and the the the, the cliff that his career fell off after he left Pittsburgh. They're, they're big on pointing that out as quickly as they can. But for whatever it is that they might have lost with Mike Wallace, they gained with Tyreek Hill. And I know that there are people um, in the listening audience that uh, have and should rip me pretty good for, for what I said uh, Hill's impact was going to be in Miami when he got outside of, of – uh, Kansas City he's he's a better player in Miami they've made him better and we're looking at legitimately right now he's on pace uh with three different quarterbacks he's played with this year he's on pace right now for a top 10 at least top 10 all-time individual receiver season he has 50 catches in 701 yards in six games and he had something called Skylar Thompson throwing him the ball for some of that time it's it's remarkable what he's done do you feel considering, we don't know exactly right now, but it's a safe bet that Pittsburgh secondary is not going to have made massive leaps and bounds from one week ago, two weeks ago. Do you feel this is another big game for Hill? Oh, yeah. I mean, everything that Tyreek Hill's done, and I, I, I'm i with you. It's fair to question what Tyreek Hill was going to be when he arrived in Miami. We all did it. Um, obviously, playing with Patrick Mahomes and, and Alex Smith for the first parts of your career, like you were – it's a bit of a step back because we had not seen Tua be uh, the level of quarterback that he was in the first three games. We had not seen that prior. Uh, but everything Tyreek Hills brought to this team from the effort on the field to the way that he's practiced, the way that his teammates talk about him, the way that the coaches talk about him, it hasn't been the the diva mentality. Yes, he's had, he's said some things. He's he's made some comments about how uh, Tua Tagovailoa is the the most accurate passer and the that he's ever played with or ever seen. He's he's done some things with calling out Bengals players uh, before that loss. So he he's done some things that haven't uh, been the best. You have haven't to call shown out the Bengals best. players. Come on. I mean, you have to. It's, <laughs> it's the Bengals. Kind of. It's a rite of passage, um, but I do think Tyreek, he's, he's been incredible. He's been incredible in every aspect, and this should be another game that he should be able to to get his yards, get his receptions. He's on pace. I know you said top 10. He's on pace to break the uh, receiving yards record this year, and and again, that's Skyward Thompson, Teddy Bridgewater for, for half the games that you've played. Um, allow him to get the ball in his hands and do do what he does best. He's he's been everything that they could have asked. 5 draft picks and 30 million dollars somehow not enough. Yeah, he's a problem. He's he he's definitely a problem and you could see that and you could see how devastating that offense is particularly in the game against Baltimore when they really came back. And it's it's been an interesting season. I mean, you guys could literally be 5 and 1, 4 and 2. But there's a scenario where you can be, you know, 0-6 because um, mm-hmm. some of those games have been very topsy-turvy. What's the thought and your thought of uh, the new coach? What's your thought? What's he bringing? What's what's the upside with him? And um, do you think he's that guy? Yeah, I mean, part of it is the big difference, a stark difference between him and Brian Flores' personalities. Mike McDaniel's making jokes every week in every press conference, trying to do his best to make keep the mood light uh, throughout this losing streak. Brian Flores was the complete opposite. He was, he was a bit of a hard ass, and it was something that 
uh, maybe some of the team needed, but not all of the team appreciated. Um, Mike McDaniel has done a lot here so far. I think the system that he's brought with him and the coaches that he's brought with him, whether that be Wes Welker, John Embry, the tight ends and wide receivers coach, um, those guys have really helped this room. I think Mike McDaniel's system has allowed Tua to flourish. It has gotten the most out of guys like Tyreek Hill. You brought over Raheem Mostert, who he had a relationship with from his days with the 49ers. Overall, the energy and the um, the emotion that he showed, the how, how much his players respect him, they always talk about how they're going out of their way to go up to his office and hang out with him. He's saying that two was calling him at, in the, in the middle of the night. And he's like, Hey, Tua, what's going on? Is everything all right? He's like, no, I just wanted to talk. Like that's not a relationship you see all the time with your coaches and, and your, your star players. And that's something that's been really interesting to watch develop here. Um, as far as on, on the field stuff, I think he draws up a lot of interesting, interesting plays. It, it's always uh, a different scenario to see a head coach that calls plays. I think that's not, the ideal scenario in most in most cases um i think it takes away a little bit but some of the plays that you've seen him design have been great he, he's been able to get the ball into guys hands open in the middle of the field or have some misdirection plays at the same time you have people who have been questioning his uh frequency of going forward on fourth down um he's done that quite a few times already uh and then in this past week it was the first time it really didn't work and and you had the boo birds coming out about that um, but i think overall it's been a really good experience and he looks like a really solid coach i just think they've had um a lot of injuries that have started the season uh and then the one thing that they need to work on and it falls into him as well is is the penalties they've had i believe 20 penalties the last two weeks for almost 200 yards that can't happen you can't be shooting yourself in the foot with these penalties and the turnovers you need to you need to be on on your p's and q's there and i think that really helps when you get your quarterback back and he can start to lead things on the offense again. Um, but I think he's, it's the first step in a solid, uh, solid direction with Mike McDaniel's career in Miami. I definitely think that that all tracks from what we've seen so far and good comment in here. That was exactly what I thought of. Um, either way, the, the, the late night phone call just to talk is kind of, I don't, know. <laughs> I don't know how long that's going to last for either one of them, to be honest. That it, it might not be a, a key to success, but hey, open lines of communication are always good. Mm -hmm. It's a, a, a younger generation. I believe McDaniels is um, a, a, among many coaches that are now in the game younger than me, but um, that, that's what they do. That's great. It's obvious that uh, that they're getting results, but it, let's, let's go old school here, Mike. You might recall, you were not even close to alive when this happened. I wasn't either. Lance was probably like a teenager. But um, 50 years ago, 1972, Miami Dolphins go undefeated, 14-0 and in the regular season, 3-0 and in the playoffs, including a Super Bowl win and an AFC championship win over the upstart Pittsburgh Steelers at that point. The Dolphins are going to honor that team, understandably. It's a, the right moment for them, a primetime game. Um it, they're they're going to break everybody out as annoying as they've been with the champagne corks and everything, and maybe maybe they will have popped that before, um, it, before their ceremony that night in Miami as as Philadelphia uh, looks to go seven and zero. They're playing this week, right? Or are they on by? They might be on by. They're on a bye. Okay, bye, yeah. never mind then. Um, then then they won't. Well, they'll celebrate however it is that they do that. Do you feel 
considering how long ago this was, do you feel that the fan base resonates with this at all? Is it something that they're excited about? Team's going to wear throwback jerseys, which I'm always excited for. I love the throwback jerseys. I hate the alternates. I, I really like seeing the stuff from the 70s and the 80s. Uh, do, you, do you think this is kind of you know an added benefit with Tua coming back, an exciting team, the best offensive player in the game that, that doesn't play the quarterback position on the field? Do you feel like that this is going to be an added charge to a, a primetime environment? Yeah, it's it's really interesting because it's like you said, fifty years. Uh, that was um, I think my my parents were like three when that happened. So <laughs> so um, it's it's does not resonate with me watching it because I I, I was not there. Uh, but the fan base loves it. It's the seventy two thing is still even the younger generation, even even my generation and below. It's still the the. The 72 Dolphins, it's still the Mercury Morrises, it's still the Larry Zonkas, it's still the Paul Warfields, the Bob Greases, the Earl Morals. It's it's all of this every every week they're talking about it. I, I remember when I when I first started covering the Dolphins and seeing seeing people talk about the 72 Dolphins, I was like, huh, well, this is this is something that was a very long time ago. We don't even talk about things that happened 10 years ago um, in, in most cases. Um, but it is <laughs> such an important. That's for sure. <laughs> it's Not much it's, going on there. Right. And it's a, it's a remarkable achievement and it, it resonates. I feel like around the league, like everybody knows the story of the 72 dolphins. Everybody knows this is the undefeated team. And when you had new England trying to, to, to best that it was, it was an even bigger story. So bringing that up again, every few years and, and having that, uh, last moment of everybody popping their champagne. Uh, Mercury Morris loves to celebrate every time. We all know that. Um, having that in in the back of their heads and in the in the mind going into this game, I think it, it is a little bit of a bonus. They they did put out a, a video about ten minutes before I came on here of the making and the stitching of the the throwback jerseys. They showed Teron nice. Armstead's seventy two with the new patch on it. Nice. It's, it's beautiful and. The fan base. This is the this is the jersey they want to see. So this is a, a great moment for them. Everybody, every week, you get countless, countless tweets. Please make the throwback jerseys permanent. Please make the logo permanent. Like, they, you need to get back to this. And I think the the fan the fans love it. And this is going to be a, a an even bigger atmosphere than it already was going to be. I felt myself aging as both of you <laughs> laughed about. Uh, 70s football given i was the only one alive at the time that this happened i can say according I to no the comments Lance, you are though. older than mike's parents are yes I, I i i noticed that as well <laughs> and um yes it made me just feel seasoned but before we let you go mike we got to get a prediction for the game and again everybody you're looking at you're listening to Mike Masala of DolphinsWire.usatoday.com. What's your prediction for the game, sir? Yeah, I think if you have if you have Tua back in and and that those are, that's the way that they're planning on going. Mike McDaniel said yesterday that they're acting as if he's going to be the starter and they're being very careful with that. But I think if if you have him back, um, obviously a lot of it depends on the other health of your tackles. I I think the Dolphins should end up winning this game. It should be a very close game. I think both teams score probably in the mid twenties. Like I would say probably a 27, 24 game makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I I'm just really excited to see these two uh, historic and semi-historic franchises uh, on a big stage with some great moments and, and having, having this, these narratives, the, 
the like you said, Mika Fitzpatrick is is not being talked about, and that and that was a huge trade just a few years ago. And if it wasn't for the the bringing in of J, uh, Javon Holland last year, I think it would have been an even bigger story. Um, but I think we're in for a great matchup, and I think I think Miami can can pull this out with a probably a three point victory. Steelers Thank you, Mike, for joining again. us. No problem. Thanks, guys. Mike. I appreciate you guys having me. It's been a blast. Um, anytime you guys want me, I'm I'm here for you. For sure. For that uh, completely improbable playoff matchup, you'll be the first one we call. <laughs> Perfect. Sounds good, guys. Thanks, Mike. Do you want to do your predictions, Neil, or do you want to jump into some other topic? <laughs> um, I'll give my prediction, but I, I wanted to ask you a question that came up from that. Uh, the Tyreek Hill is just too much. I mean, that, that dude's a beast. He's doing it at all levels. He's doing it on any pass that's thrown to him. Um, he's, he's maybe the most impressive player I've seen so far this season. Um, I don't know him how the, the Steelers... Alien. Yeah. And the alien. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I don't see how the Steelers are going to be able to contain him just because, well, frankly, nobody has contained him at all. 50 catches in six games with junk at the quarterback positions okay their starter isn't even among like the best in the game and their backups aren't better for sure uh for him to be doing what he's doing it, it's it's all fields all routes everywhere i don't i don't see the steelers stopping that um they're a big play waiting to happen and this isn't a team that, that's uh steelers aren't going to be capable of running with a team like that i don't think um i like the dolphins 27 20 in this i it, that might even be closer than it probably should be I'm going to surprise you with my prediction because I thought it was great that Mike brought out uh, and talked about Greg Little. I'm looking at Greg Little's grade. His overall grade actually for the game was 25.1, but it has to be a PFF low of 1.5 in terms of a pass obviously can't grade. get much worse than that. I mean, that's, <laughs> you, he's, you, that's, can't get you surrender worse pressure that. on every snap. <laughs> that's, that's hard. <laughs> I think the Steel- the issue with the Steelers in-, in predicting these games is that the Steelers don't score a lot of points. So it's very hard <laughs> to predict that the Not Steelers are going to win games because yeah, they don't score a lot. No, I mean, when you, you know, when he said 24 points in my head, I said, man, can they score 24? Like, it, is, every is guest that-, that we have estimates it high. They're, they're being nice to the audience. They, they Nobody is thinking the Pittsburgh the Pittsburgh Steelers this year are scoring more than 20 points a game nobody's seeing that so I, I I'm thinking that the Steelers can get after the Dolphins offensive line get after a quarterback that has not played um in the last couple of weeks I think the Brian Flores effect will be in full display uh in this particular game given his familiarity with Tua with the Dolphins personnel. I think the Steelers coaching staff, especially on the defensive side of ball, does another great, fantastic job this week. And I like the Steelers to win a very close game on the road in Miami, 21-20. to Because I don't think the Steelers can score 24 points. So I'm picking the Steelers to win this game 21-20. One of the scores comes off of, not a turnover, but it it puts them in position to score on a short field with a strip sack. Um, Highsmith gets a strip sack, continues to lead the National Football League in sacks. Kudos to him. Steelers go down to Miami and avenge 
the 72 team that lost to Miami in the divisional round. And the Steelers go to Miami and win this game 21-20. That's ballsy. I'll say this. Miami is a pretty poor special teams unit. If Pittsburgh is going to win this game, it's going to be on the strength of what has kind of propelled all of their upsets as of late. They're going to have to make a big play on special teams. They're going to have to get the ball and or score somehow or other. They're going to have to take this game off of uh, serve, if you will. And special teams is a a key way to do that. Their special teams has done well with that. I think it was a a, a key part of their win against Tampa Bay. If they're going to win, they're going to have to make a play on special teams. Um, Our boy Steven Sims looks up to the task. I thought he did a great job um, in the return game Sunday. We'll see if it happens. You know, I never say never, certainly not in this league and certainly not this year. But um, I, Miami, step for step, is a better team that hasn't stopped Pittsburgh from winning games as of late, though. You big Mercury like... Morris guy, Lance? Yes. I, I, I think I'm one of the few people outside of, like, hardcore old Dolphins fans that actually likes the champagne popping thing. I do. I like it. I think it's, I think it's great. It, it's such a like it's such it. a great troll move. People get so pissed off about it. You know why I like it particularly? <laughs> I love that does it. You know why I like it particularly? Because in this current sports era, there's such an emphasis on stats every single game yep. that a lot of times stats and stat obsession overwhelms the importance of winning. And, and I think that the undefeated season reemphasizes that winning is paramount, that that's what you're doing it for. You're not doing it to get 31, 14, 8, 5, 5, 5, 6, and 7 steals or whatever. Like, you, it's you're doing it to win the game. basketball season has started. <laughs> you know, you're, you're doing it to win the game. I mean, so, and I love that it celebrates – winning and just how hard winning is and I think sometimes that gets forgotten because I think the way it's presented sometimes is that fans can take away positivity at all times because you can emphasize some stat you can lose the game but you know sports center could talk about a guy throwing seven touchdowns and how the game was historic and by the time they finish reporting on the game you forget that your team lost yep Yep, and that that's that's a great way to put it, it as far as the the culture in general because you always get the well actually crowd when when stats aren't up to what they want on their fantasy teams probably more than anything else and football is I think anyway the least what do you want to say the the the, the correlation between stats and winning and success in sports is obvious okay we we know that it exists. But there is a gap in certain sports. I think stats play very much into other sports more so than they do football, just because football is more of the the mid-distance race. You know, when you run an 800-meter race, you're kind of both sprinting and doing the endurance thing. And you do it at different times. You kind of, you know, you're running to kind of keep pace with people until the end. If you're the best sprinter after 600 meters, you can overtake everybody else who's there. 
your split of the first lap that you run in that race is not going to be very good if that's your your style. And I think that's a, a close equivalent to how football can be played. And this is the value of the quarterback position. Nobody here has any questions at all of what I feel about Mitch Trubisky as a quarterback in the NFL. You know who played probably the best late game two possessions in the NFL last week? Mitch Trubisky. The Steelers needed him to be at his best at that time, and he stepped up and did it. Now, he, he was, what, 9 for 12, 144 yards, touchdown, no interceptions, recovered an impossible fumble to recover. Keep in mind, it, it, Mason Cole almost became go to the week for that. All right, was, was it Cole at that point, or was it Woodbury's it was own J.C. Hassenauer? It, it I forget, was but bad snap, almost a complete disaster, and that would have swung the game easily. It, Trubisky makes that play. Put that on top of the run that he made along with his passing stats. Is he doing all of those things over four quarters? Probably not. But it, at the end of it, when the game is on the line, they're trying to, to milk a, a two-point lead and ice the game. He stepped up and played his absolute best. Best he's played this season without question. It's not even close. Those are his, his 12 best throws, his best run. His best leadership was on display for that. So to me, his stats, while they were impressive, they don't fully uh, uh, explain to somebody that's just looking at a box score how important he was in that game. And he had good stats. I still don't think that tells the whole story. That's what you get in football. In basketball, there's almost kind of a high and a low. You know, if, if a guy scores 45 points and they lose, it's pretty obvious the storyline that's going to come with that. It's that nobody else was there and or this guy's a black hole and just puts everything up. And there are several players in the league who are like that. Football, it, it could be anything. You could have a fantastic game and your stats be mediocre. You could have fantastic stats and not have made plays when it counted. So the storyline of the game is that you failed, regardless of anything else. Football plays itself best to that, I think. If, I don't know if that rant made any sense to anybody. but no, I, I think what the, you're the, saying the, is The is pursuit accurate. of statistics in football is just not on the same level as it is with other sports. Yeah, and I think until you've gotten, like, you know, football outsiders and PFF and certain, you know, different sites like that, you had certain position groups where the only stat was sacks. Did you give up a sack? Yep. Like, and so, and clearly in the game of football, if you miss a block, it might not be on a stat sheet, but it might lead to a turnover. You know, your quarterback gets knocked out for the game um, and you look, go on a three-game losing streak. So, you know, a missed block in that situation might have been the most important play uh, for the Dolphins. But the, the title of the yep. show, you know, is do the Steelers have a starting quarterback controversy? And I guess that Mike Tomlin put that to rest by saying, if Kenny Pickett, you know, is healthy, Kenny Pickett is going to be the starter. And I think that's the case because I think good teams don't convolute the decision-making process. And I think by him naming, saying that this early in the week, I think it firmly establishes that Kenny Pickett is the starter. Mitch Trubisky is the backup. Mitch did his job, like Melvin said, a decent backup in a pinch, but you can't build a team on him. And that it's time to get this going with Kenny Pickett. And, and, and do you agree with that decision? Do you think, given the way that Mitch performed 
maybe you slow play Kenny back. I mean, what, what's your thoughts on how the situation is being handled? But I'm not I'm not surprised by it, though. Um, I, I'll say this. I took a lot of heat from people back before the season started when Tomlin did not name his starting quarterback as quickly as, as he could have. Um, I felt the best way to lead your team is to point clearly the direction that you're going in. I felt Tomlin had the opportunity to do that. The reason that he didn't was more, in my opinion, nonsense gamesmanship to not let the opponent know who you're going to start. I, I don't see any value in doing that. Cincinnati had a, a very firm idea who, who Pittsburgh's starting quarterback was going to be. I don't think that's necessary. So for me, the fact that Tomlin, it, within the first 10 seconds of his press conference, which strongly indicates that he was prepared to do exactly what he did, uh, he had planned to do that, said this is our starting quarterback, provided there are no you know issues that come up. We're not, we don't need to hold his feet to the fire. That's the team's plan. That's great. I don't, if it's me, I don't give a rat's ass if the Dolphins know who my starting quarterback is. They have film on both anyway. And if any team knows what can happen to a quarterback from one play to another, it's the Dolphins. And then from there, the Steelers. So it, it, both players are going to need to be prepared. And both teams are going to look at the film of the backup quarterback and what they did with that guy in there. They're going to have a sense of what's going on. That said, um, if, if Pickett is right and that's the guy Tomlin's going with, that's that's the right move. As long as they make that early in the week and this is what they're going to go into it with. That to me is a, a decision that looks very immediate. It looks very quick. And it's one that I'm sure they agonized over from five minutes after the game Sunday through to Tuesday at noon Eastern for their press conference. They make that look far more simple than I'm sure that it is because frankly, Trubisky looked damn good. I, I was really impressed with the effort that he put forward in that game and I, I wonder, and this is where the controversy part comes in, I wonder how much of that was Mitch Trubisky basically saying, look, I don't think I should have been benched. I was doing exactly what you told me to do, and then you benched me. If I'm coming in here now, I'm playing to get filmed down so I can go get a job next year because there's no way you're keeping me. Absolutely. I need to put better film out, so I'm going to do this my way. And it, the reason I say that is not to create that controversy. It's to say... Mitch Trubisky did not play anything at all like he did uh, in the three and a half games that he got prior to this one, as he did in the second half against Tampa Bay. He made much different reads. He looked much more comfortable. He was aggressive. He attacked and, and he got rewarded for it. I can't point out again enough. That was a, a terrible snap, whether it was Cole or Hassenauer for Trubisky to get back and race a much better athlete to get to that ball. That means something to me. That, that should have a lot of value because it's not as if Najee Harris was going to get to it. Um, Trubisky was the only guy in the field that was going to be able to. And that's not a knock against Pickett. It's just saying he put that out there because he needs to show he is capable of playing at the NFL. And frankly, from what I saw, just in those 12 throws that he made, the couple runs that he had, the decisions that he made, the, the effort that he put forward – He's going to get a job somewhere next year, and good for him for doing it because he outplayed, I think, any of his expectations. Yeah, because I think you're absolutely right because, and I was talking to my brother about this, being the 37th, 36th best quarterback in the National Football League is very lucrative. 
And, mm-hmm. you know, he's at a point where, you know, he played like I've got to put some good film out there. It's very interesting that you said that because he played loose. He played loose and fast. And it's interesting that you brought I, up. I Nick think he played F you, Matt Canada. I'm going to I'm going to put the ball yes. where I want to put the ball. It, we, we know that. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I just want to get this last point. And we know that because this is not what happened in any of their other close games. They right. didn't do it against New England. And Pickett didn't do it against the Jets, except for the one that he, he turned over. They didn't go for anything. They wanted to let their defense, you know, eat in the situation when it was third and 11 against New England. They didn't do anything. Mitch took it upon himself to put the game on his back, and he made a huge throw. Claypool made a huge catch, and they did that twice. Good for them. That's, that's frankly what they probably should be doing more often than they are. The interesting thing you said also, too, about Mitch being benched was, and I want to read this headline from the Post-Gazette and just show how tricky headlines can be if they're written in this way and what that does. The Post-Gazette tweeted out earlier this week that Mitch Trubisky was benched against the Jets following a locker room confrontation at halftime with receiver Deontay Johnson. Multiple resources have told the Post-Gazette. The interesting thing about that is it does not say because of the confrontation. It just says following the confrontation. And I wish I was this good of a writer to say something without saying something and have one simple statement create a spiraling narrative that may not even be true based on what was written. I read this and said, they didn't say it was because of an argument. They just said it was after the argument. Correct. Which makes you wonder why it is they would put in the benching part to begin with. I like, I, I, I don't want to go over. I don't want to rant too long on this. It, it is a very interesting topic, and I can assure you there are very experienced, very intelligent people who are behind making those decisions. But the bottom line is there's nothing at all that ties uh, the benching of Mitch Trubisky to a, a spat in the locker room between, allegedly, between Deontay Johnson and Mitch Trubisky. Uh, I, I think I think Tomlin addressed this perfectly yesterday when, when he said, I, I'm going to paraphrase him because I don't have the quote in front of me, he said, basically, if it did happen, that happens, and it shows that they want to win. If it didn't, it probably should have because we need more fire. I love the fact that Tomlin said that, and if this whole thing did nothing more than, than bring that mentality to light, then good for them. I, I, you know, Players yell at each other all the time. It, it's not rare at all. I'm not at all surprised. Um, if, if we want to really knit, if we want to pick nits over this whole thing, Deontay might wanted to hang on to a few of the balls that he got in that game if he wanted to get more. Um, but it, it's not the point. It, most of the time, too, it's not that they're angry or upset. You ride on a very, very high edge at that level. And that's how they communicate. You know, it, I always find it funny when people say, well, good leaders don't yell at people. It's like it's not yelling. It's that's how you express yourself in that kind of environment. It's combat. Whether we want to, you know, compare it to the military or not, it's a different story. But it, it is aggressive. It is very emotional and it's violent. They're not going to sit down and chat. They're not going to get a mediator and, and hash out their problems with HR. They that's just how they converse. It's not necessarily 
uh, all that violent. They're not pushing and shoving each other, you know, Robbie Anderson style on the sideline. That's a different situation. But if it's a receiver and a quarterback, I assure you, they yell at each other about where the ball is going all the time. That That's just a part of their job. Yeah, I, I think it gets people confused. It know, does. How do it you does. You're, you're right to bring that up. It was it yeah. was a, a very sneaky headline. I talked about that for a good amount uh, of time yesterday. I yeah. I don't know if I would have used that headline. I'll just say that. Yeah, I see I why like, they did, was, but. You know, it, it uh, was crafty. I, like I, I appreciated I like the craft. You could have said the, the Jets game at halftime, and I think people would have pieced it together on their own. You know, yeah, I, mean, I, I don't I, think I, it needed like to be the a part craft of it. and the deft touch of how it was written and how it was written in the way in which you could run multiple ways with it. I I I like the technical construction of it, and I think you're right. Good communication also involves how you should communicate and the situation. Um, it's hard to communicate a point in that type of environment in ways in which you may not have to yell. So like you may have yeah. to emphasize it's a violent, it's a fast, it's physical, it's emotional, and you're going to have to cater your communication to that to get your point across. It, it's also very loud. It's chaotic. Yes. I, I can't stress that enough. I think that that's the one thing. And I've been on NFL sidelines for, for a couple different teams over the years. The one thing that you get on there is it is complete and total organized chaos. It doesn't make any sense of how anything is successful, but the yelling is a product of the environment. You have a, a you have a very few amount of people controlling the actions or the directions for the actions of a lot of people. It is really hard to sit and act with a roaring crowd behind you, nonetheless, uh, operating in a vacuum. It's it's wide open. It's hard to have your voice heard, and you need to be heard. You don't have time to repeat things. Lock Halftime is not very long at all. They have no time to go in. You know, it, you and I have talked about this, Lance. The amount of people that yell and scream, what about halftime adjustments? You don't have time at halftime to overhaul your entire plan. You just don't. That's why you have a plan. You have to stick with it because there's no time to just change it. There are a lot of things that go into telling 11 people what to do. You have to practice it. If you don't have time to practice it, there's no point in running it. You're going to get killed if you do that. There are little things that you correct and adjust that you need to talk about, but there is very little time in the locker room to be able to do that. So if it's a heated situation and they need to be heard with 53 other guys talking, communicating, getting, you know, it, it, injuries treated, all of these things, you you probably have to raise your voice a little bit to do that. And when it comes to the, the high level of uh, ego and defense, like, why aren't you throwing me the ball? Because you're not open, dickhead. Things like that. You, you need to be able to be clear. You need to be heard. And yeah, it can be construed by some as they were yelling at each other. Now, what I said on, on uh, social media yesterday was nothing about this suggests this was like Chad Johnson going into the locker room in the, the divisional playoff game against the Steelers and starting to swing on Hugh Jackson. OK, that's a problem. That's something you don't want. But if it's two guys yelling at each other, that happens. It's not, you know, it, it, it's not the end of the world. It's not that big of a deal. The main thing, though, to, to your original point, Lance, was the fact that they um it's fair, but it's misleading at the same time to put that argument 
right in front of Trubisky getting benched as if that was a component of it. And I, I just can't buy that. There's no way. Um, it, plus, Deontay Johnson didn't get the ball a whole lot. He didn't get the ball a whole lot against Tampa Bay when, when the chips were down either. So it doesn't seem like it's a major priority. They're not going to bench the quarterback for not throwing the ball to Deontay Johnson. Okay, there, There's just no no logic in that at all. You're absolutely right, and we're going to get out of here. I am on record with 21-20, the Pittsburgh Steelers with a victory. Give me your prediction again, Neil. I like 27-20 Dolphins. 27-20 Dolphins. You know, I I, I guess I've just got to a point after the Tampa Bay game that I'm just going to figure out a way to pick the Steelers to possibly win a game, except in situations that I think they're going to absolutely lose when they're – 10-point dogs like against Tampa Bay. So I have no idea in terms of how I'm going to predict these games. But with that, we're going to get off here and get out of here. And as always, tune in, tell a friend, and subscribe. Go Steelers.